0: Miracy. Hello, I'm Melinda Cohen, host of Just Between Coaches. And today we're going to share a different kind of episode. You listen to Just Between Coaches because you want to become the very best coach you can be. To do that, you need to bravely dive into tough issues that others might shy away from. That's why I thought you might be interested in a brand new show that just launched on the Miracy FM podcast network. It's called The Self Awakened Lifestyle, and it's hosted by my colleague, Esko Wilson who is a lifestyle designer and performance coach. Esco's early life of crime and redemption reads like a movie. In the podcast, he brings all of his hard-earned wisdom to bear as he guides his guests through a difficult issue or challenge. Through the mind-body-spirit connection, they expand what's possible. To give you a taste of it, we're running an episode from that show right here in the Just Between Coaches feed. I chose this particular episode because... Perhaps, like you, or maybe a client, Esco's guest has some painful regrets in her life that she's trying to forgive herself for. She wants to lean into her new, richer life, but that's not always easy to do. Listen to her story and her bravery in telling it.
1: I'm obsessed by this man, possessed, possessed. It was an addiction.
2: I am Esco Wilson, and this is The Self-Awakened Lifestyle. I'm a lifestyle designer and performance coach, and I've helped hundreds of professionals learn how to tap into the power of their innate potential and thrive on a whole new level. I've seen lives change. I've seen my own life change, and I want to help more people. That's what this podcast is all about bringing my own experience together with scientific principles and holistic practices to help listeners enhance their personal and professional performance. In each episode, I guide my guests through a difficult issue or challenge. And through the mind-body-spirit connection, we will expand what's possible. One of the worst decisions that I ever made was... In 1995, I'm on bail. I have a court case. This is actually my first serious court case. And me going to prison is guaranteed. I'm 20, 21 at the time. And I had a Pathfinder truck with, you know, rims and big, big speakers. So you can hear me, you know, a mile away. Oh, that's Esco coming down the street. I went straight back to drug dealing. I'm still out on bail. I have about three months before I'll have to turn myself in and be sentenced to go to prison. And I had to get my money up. So I started rebuilding my clientele. I had been away for about five months. And I knock on the door. This is New Jersey in the suburbs. Great client. It's a woman in her mid-30s. And she opens the door. I noticed that her belly was protruding. And this was like a woman 5'10 and slim. And her belly was sticking out. So she was obviously pregnant and caught me off guard. I'm like, oh, oh, look at this. She's like, no, nah, no, nah, I'm okay. Basically saying that it's okay to continue with the drug transaction. And in that moment, I had a choice to make. And I made the worst decision of my life. I went ahead and I saw a woman clearly pregnant, easily six months, I would say. And I sold her cocaine, knowing that that is in no form or fashion beneficial to herself and obviously to this, you know, defenseless child. And only now do I have like deep remorse. Like I get really, really triggered. Like I cry, like a tears come to my eye thinking about how I strategically maneuvered my mind into dominating my belief system. Like deep down, like I know that was crazy. Like, what are you doing? Like, are you crazy? And To achieve this identity, to live up to this drug dealer persona, like I got to do what I got to do narrative, I just violated some deep, deep core values. Um, And I get out of prison a few months later, I go right back to drug dealing. So she becomes a client and now the baby is born. And I watched that child as a little girl. I watched that little girl grow up, up into about maybe six or seven years old. And this is not like me guilt tripping or trying to like make the story more heavy so I can feel more shameful about it. There was something literally wrong with this child. And she was not developing in a way that I felt was natural for a little girl to be growing up in a middle class home, suburban New Jersey. This child was mentally deficient and I still went to that house multiple times a week and delivered. Cocaine, and then I graduated to delivering crack cocaine. My guest today is Leora. She is a 67 year old woman living in New York City. She is divorced, has two grown sons, and recently joined a gym in an effort to connect with others and break out of the loneliness and isolation she's been feeling since moving back to the city during the pandemic. Leora joined my small group, Lifestyle Engineering Program, recently. We often share deeply personal things in group sessions, as you hear us talking about later in the show. Leora recently shared parts of her life that she felt may have been too much for one of the members of the group. We'll get to that a little later. But first, I asked Leora on the show today, because in our private sessions, she consistently referred to being unlovable. This idea that her past behaviors that she engaged in in a different time in her life have resulted in a person who is now unlovable, a person who doesn't deserve to be loved. And with that ideology, she traps herself in isolation. Now, the thing about her being trapped in isolation is that she Does not want to be in solitude. It's essentially a punishment, putting herself in this situation and doing it deliberately to prove that she's unlovable. I asked her to be on the podcast because I believe giving a voice to this part of her that is framed unlovable is a beautiful opportunity to allow that person, that part of her, to be loved, to share their story and be heard and be seen and allow the light to be shined upon them instead of being trapped in solitude. So Leora, how do you start describing and sharing your life?
1: I became a grandmother on Sunday.
2: I'm so happy to hear that. (laughs) How do you feel about that?
1: I'm just super, super excited to have this little baby in my life.
2: What's this person's name?
1: Henry Julian, and he has a Hebrew name that is Aviv, and that's my maiden name.
2: Your maiden name? Yeah. What makes that important, if anything?
1: So in the Jewish religion, often you name your child after a family member who's no longer living. So Henry was a favorite uncle Who's no longer alive? Julian is named for Matthew's father, my ex husband. So each family member got to name, and then together they decided that they would give him the Hebrew name of my maiden name. It makes me feel honored and treasured and loved, really loved, that they would honor me with this gesture. An honor.
2: I'm so happy
1: to hear that. Wow. Yeah. I'm so, so happy
2: to hear that. That's beautiful.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm. I'm. I'm thrilled. It, it brought tears to my eyes that they would do that, and I would never have said I need it to be named. I need this. I, nothing. Not my place. Not my child. I'm not that kind of intrusive mother. It was done to me. It was very unpleasant. I'm not carrying on that ugly tradition. So I kept quiet. And when they told me, I was blown over with delight.
2: What happened to you? So you, you said, I didn't like it when it happened to me. What happened to you?
1: Oh, so I did not find out that my first was a boy. So we had a male name and a female name.
2: You may have heard knocking sounds beginning as Leora was talking just now. There is construction going on in her building. And we stopped the session briefly while she went and asked if they could stop for an hour during our recording. They did. And Leora was very pleased, both with herself for asking and with the workers for granting the reprieve. I wanted to dig a little deeper, though. And what unfolded became a big player in our session today.
1: All you have to do is ask politely. And uh, that was the easiest request.
2: Okay, so how are you doing?
1: I am good. I have wanted to tell the downstairs construction people for four weeks, can you give me a break? And I did construction last summer, so people had to suffer through my noise. And so I'm suffering through their noise, but I'm off for two months in the summer because I work for a school and I've been listening to this like banging and sawing. And all I had to do was ask. There's a reprieve. And I'm very thankful that there's a reprieve.
2: This is actually, this is a blessing. This is beautiful. In your mind, what's the difference between you saying, you know what? I have the right for a little bit of silence, for a reprieve. You didn't say it before. Now you went and asked for a reprieve. What's the difference?
1: I asked for the reprieve because I'm doing something that's really important. I asked for us.
2: And you're willing to show up for the group. You're willing to show up for the community. Right. I appreciate that. Okay. So you're a a we person. You're all, we all kind of universal person. Is that fair to say?
1: I actually haven't always been a we person, but I have become a wee person. I worked hard at becoming a we person.
2: And I'm assuming that has something to do with how you felt when there's a naming ritual for your son, Matthew, and there's not a lot of we. There's a lot of something else, I'm assuming.
1: Well, there was a lot of we because we had discussed with both sets of parents what the names would be. And Matthew, because my mother in law's father's name was Max. So the English name was Matthew, and everybody was in agreement. And that was it. And I had a really lousy labor. And, you know, after a, a day and a half of laboring, they ended up sectioning me. And the next day, my husband came in and said, you know, my mother's really upset. She wants Matthew to have the Hebrew name of Muttel, And I I kind of freaked out.
2: And what are you hearing in this moment?
1: It's not good enough. Poof. Yeah. And I swore to myself I would never do that to my sons or daughters-in-law. I felt disrespected. I felt... Small, I felt that in my most vulnerable time, I'm cut open, I'm a brand new mother, and I'm being told that the decision that my husband and I had made was not good enough.
2: I wanted to talk a little more with Leora about the time in her life living in New York with her husband, Paul, and her new baby, Matthew. Her children are both grown now, and this is still a very prominent feeling and memory for her. So much so that she swore to never make her own sons or daughters-in-law feel the way she did at that time. Leora and I have been working on her self-confidence and shining a light into the dark places that hold her back. So I wanted Leora to paint a picture of her life all those years ago, so we can both discover just how much light she's letting in. In
1: 1985, we were in a one-bedroom apartment, Paul, Matthew, and me, and we decided to buy a two-bedroom apartment. And we looked, and we looked, and we looked, and New York was very expensive. And we had friends that had moved to um, Short Hills, New Jersey. And one day they call us up, "Come see our new house." And we did. Phil said to Paul, "Move out to New Jersey. You'll get a house. The taxes, real estate taxes in New Jersey at that time were nothing. And the school system is fabulous, fabulous. You don't have to pay. For a private school. But you didn't want that. I didn't, but I went along with it. What'd you want? I wanted to stay in the city. Why? Because that's what I knew. And my parents were here. Okay. And I was working and I had a babysitter for Matthew and... I never got out of work on time. And I was able to call my mother and say, can you meet the babysitter? And she would. And I had my family.
2: Family. We. You're a family person.
1: Right. I had my parents. And it was very, very important to have my family.
2: So you land in New Jersey. And what happens?
1: And I can't say that I had a breakdown. But emotionally I descended because now I'm in the suburbs. And I had one friend, Betsy. I had nobody. Paul would leave at 6 a.m. and come home like eight o'clock at night. And it was me and Matthew. And I was homesick, terribly, terribly homesick. I was homesick for my mother. And I was lonely. I was really, really, really lonely. So um, I decided I was going to work. And I got a job at Warner Lambert. And my son got sick. He had a blood disorder. And so he would bump against the wall. And he would get a black and blue mark. And, you know, I'm, I'm noticing my kid is black and blue from head to toe. And it wasn't until one day he opens his mouth and he had these blood clots in his mouth that I said, Oh my God, my son is sick. And meanwhile, I had gotten a job at Warner Lambert, and the start date was like six weeks ahead of time. And during the six weeks, he got sick. And I postponed my start date three times. And then finally, I said, Don't hold the position open for me. I'm not going to come to work because I had this sickly kid. I couldn't put him in daycare. And I decided I would have a second child and be a stay-at-home mom until the next child was like two years old and I would go back to work. And now I'm a stay-at-home mom in the suburbs. And that that was not for me. I wasn't thriving at all. I was terribly, terribly unhappy. I was unhappy because I never saw my husband. Um, We started to fight and grow apart. And I was very, very unhappy. And I said, I'm really unhappy. I'm going to have an affair.
2: How'd you get to that point? How'd you get to the... The commitment point. There's fantasy, there's intention. How'd you get to the action, the manifestation of the affair?
1: I looked. I actually looked. I was at my gym.
2: So you're hanging out in the gym and how you scout?
1: Well, it seemed like everybody was sleeping with everybody at this gym. I mean, it was kind of wild. Anyway, I meet a man named Jim. One day I'm on a exercise bike. And he pulls his bike closer to my bike. He just started to talk to me and ask me questions and tell me about himself. He was an East Orange police officer. I lost my keys at the gym and he drove me home so I could get an extra set of car keys. And I said to him, thank you. I owe you a lunch.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. That was strategic.
1: That was strategic. Mm Mm-hmm. And we went out for lunch. I had butterflies in my stomach, and I was falling for him. Right away. Well, I mean, it took a few weeks, but I was falling for him. I'm excited. I got my juices flowing. I'm excited. I want to look good. I'm tingling. Like a drug. Like a drug. Exactly. Like a drug. Like cocaine. When you get high, like everything is fast and everything is like you're on top of the world. And we have this lunch and nothing happened, nothing. And then one day we ended up at Verona Park sitting on the park bench. And that's where we kissed for the first time. That was a combination of Quaaludes and Coke. Because, you know, my body was like jellified and my mind is like on fire. Oh, my
2: God. Okay. Emotional state at the time?
1: I'm obsessed by this man. Possessed. Mm. Possessed. Like an addiction. It was harder to stop seeing Jim than to give up Coke, than to give up cigarettes. It was an addiction. It was magic for four weeks, five weeks. And then he decided that because I was married, he needed to level the playing field and he needed to have another girlfriend. The guy was a womanizer. I I, I don't even know how many women he slept with while he was with me. So I went from being... On cloud nine and in love to desperate, absolute desperation.
2: Talk to me about desperation.
1: It became a competition. I would want to occupy all his time. I was fractured. I was desperate, fractured. And I have the secret. And, you know, you can't tell anyone you're having an affair, A. And B, you can't tell anyone... That you're having an affair with a man who's also sleeping with another woman.
2: Well, he's playing a different game.
1: He changed the rules. Now, you would think that that would be cause to break up.
2: But this is this is cocaine. This is Quaaludes. This is addiction.
1: Yeah, I couldn't break up with him. We broke up three times in like 10 years. And I was caught twice. I started to see a psychiatrist. They put me on Prozac. I was a wreck, but I was labeled a sex addict. I started to go to Sex Addicts Anonymous. I would go to these meetings. I was not a sex addict, but it was convenient to call me because, you know, why did I do this to my nice husband? I must be a sex addict. I broke up with Jim. We were broken up for like six weeks. I remember I met him at ShopRite in Livingston with the keys to his apartment. And I gave him the keys and I said, I'm going back to my husband. Here are the keys. And that was it. Six weeks later, I was so depressed. I had to see him. You know, I needed my fix. I drove to his apartment and it was just, you know, like so good to see him. And I didn't sleep with him. I needed to think about it. Meanwhile, he's still seeing this woman, Marcy, and now he has another woman. And I said, we got to get back together. I said, but you cannot have two women. So he ended it with one of the women and kept the relationship with Marcy.
2: So those are the rules of that game.
1: Those are the rules of that game. I slept with Jim and the condom broke. And I think I'm going to get pregnant from this man. What do I do? I went home. I seduced my husband. And we did not use contraception. So I get pregnant. I don't know whose baby it is. And I would have ended up with a blonde, green-eyed baby. But I have, you know, dark-eyed babies, very Jewish-looking babies and uh, Jim was Irish Catholic, there would have been a paternity test, and I had an abortion. It wasn't pretty. It was not pretty. And, you know, when you have kids to terminate a pregnancy, I love babies, and I'm terminating a pregnancy. That That was big. So this affair led me to the darkest Depths of the darkest depths.
2: I'm really honored that you are allowing some light into the darkest, into the depths.
1: Yeah. And I broke up with him. I always went back until finally I didn't go back.
2: Leora is recognizing that Jim and the affair represented some kind of bottom and then the abortion is the bottom of like life experience so the bottom for Leora is almost like somebody who's claustrophobic who creates a sequence of events that lands them into like being trapped in a grave or being trapped in a very small container and she's the only one who knows about this and there's nobody else that she can share it with so that heavy emotion that heavy story is trapping her in solitude so in this process of us being invited in into her solitude into her isolation and her deep story bringing light And helping to unburden and make things a little less heavy, that part of her receives love and that part of her can now participate in the beautiful journey ahead, the journey to be spent with her first grandchild as a whole person, because that's the only way that she can overflow unconditional love. Leora has to be a whole person. That means the woman that made a decision and put herself into a very heavy, heavy, heavy experience in life, that woman has to be part of the grandparenting experience in order for Leora to have an overflow of love that spills unconditional into the life of the baby, into the life of her son, into the life of the son's mother.
1: I love babies. Babies are They're so perfect, and they're so innocent. They're perfect. They have these little fingers and toes and that little stomach, and they're just so innocent and pure. And There's all this potential. They're beautiful, and babies are miracles. You know, it's like there's a God because a man and a woman with the help of God, creates life. And then that life is in a woman. And she carries this life for nine months. And she feels it. And it moves. And it kicks. And you're a miracle. You're a walking miracle. And then nine months come, and the baby comes out. And it's this, it's religious. It's spiritual.
2: How do you feel?
1: I'm crying. You know, I'm holding my grandson. And, oh, my God, he's so perfect. It's a blessing. It's an absolute blessing.
2: That is very powerful. And you finally made it back to New York.
1: I made it back. And you're lonely. I'm lonely. I'm lonely. And I just, you know, everyone's suggesting take a class, do this, do that. And, you know, I'm depressed. So I'm not doing any of these. You know, I wake up at five, I'm on the road at six, I go to work.
2: So you're in New York. And as before, you're depressed, and you find a gym to help you.
1: Well, I first started to go, you know, I went after work, I went on the weekend, I went a lot, but I feel invisible that's how i felt i thought i would strike up a friendship i would talk to people i'd walk in invisible nobody would look in my direction and i said okay i'm going to start taking classes and so it was i think it was either the sunday morning class or the friday at 5:30 cuz those are the two times you teach and um i took the class and i said this is for me that I want to do this and the rest is history.
2: <laughs> invisible.
1: No, I'm not invisible because I noticed people looking to me for the pose when it used to be me looking to them for the pose. And yeah, what really helped was your groups And um, I love the private session, but I'm ecstatic for the group session because they're because they, they have become friends. I thought I would have a connection with Shula and she was the one person that I was worried about telling my story to on Saturday. And I think I freaked her out. I do. I think I freaked her out.
2: What makes Shula different than the rest?
1: Shula has the most, what I think, stable existence. She's married. She has three kids. Her kids go to the school that she works at.
2: And how come she's ripped out?
1: Because it was quite a story. I mean, I think it was hard to digest.
2: What does Shula think about that story?
1: This chick is crazy.
2: Shula believes that you live the crazy life. Yeah. You sure about that?
1: No, I'm not sure about it.
2: Ah, so there's a part that's not sure.
1: I'm 90%
2: sure. 10% of you is not sure. Okay. What do you want to do? Do you want to breathe into the 10% or you want to associate with the 90%? Who inside of you right now is creating this judgment?
1: The fearful person. I'm not good enough person.
2: What do you want to do about this internal person? this person inside of you who's creating judgments right now. This has nothing to do with Shula. This is what you think about yourself. This chick lived a crazy life. There's a part of you that's like, yo, this chick lived a crazy life.
1: Yeah. I know I lived a crazy life. And that's what makes me, me. That's what makes me a loving, sensitive, giving, open person.
2: I invite you to allow Shula the opportunity to love you. All of you, all the way that you are.
1: Absolutely. Okay. I will absolutely give her the opportunity to love me.
2: And I want you to lean towards we. Is that fair?
1: That is fair. And that will not be a problem. I will not have a problem doing that.
2: Yeah. Set the stage. Create the momentum. You're in New York and you are a we person. You allow the we to emerge In your existence, in your life. And when the we is not present, you feel it. You feel depressed. Okay. And I'm asking you and I'm going to work with you. I got love for you and I appreciate you sharing. I'm asking you to allow yourself mistakes and growth, allow Shula mistakes and growth and to be open and connected and vulnerable and curious as you explore we in New York City. This is post-COVID now. So now who knows what's good. Things might open up. You might find you another gym. I mean, a gym membership.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right, gym in the gym.
2: What'd you learn today?
1: How to perfect the we.
2: Ooh, I love it. I learned that too. What stood out for me was I was about to move on from the gym explorations. And there was something deep. You talked about darkness and depth, heaviness, and and we talked about putting some light into that area of who you are and letting that area of who you are express itself. And you made sure that you talked about the abortion. And there's something about that part of you that has been forgiven by you. You've forgiven yourself in some way around that.
1: I have. But it resonated with me because of the birth of my grandson.
2: Ah, look at that. Yeah. The cycle. And that's practicing the we, the cycle of life and legacy. And it's is a beautiful conversation. I know it wasn't easy, you know, because we go in and we start sharing things that people will have judgments around. This is 100% guaranteed. Oh, yeah. And... To have ownership over all that we are and to be able to say, yep, I've forgiven myself to the point where I can literally tell you the details, tell you who I was being in those moments, thinking the way that I was thinking. And I forgive her. I love her. She is me. We are all. I love it. We wanna remain curious about having an internal critic. There's something inside of us that's receiving criticism. Does that person inside of us have a friend, a companion, someone that is willing to listen to that internal part of us that's getting criticized and tell them the truth? So again, we're talking about a we model. What does a we model really look like? In my opinion is heal, Nurture, love, self so much that it overflows unconditionally into the life of the people that are around you. And then I ask you to be discerning with the people that you allow to be around you. I shared my story with the groups, about 10 of us, and one of our members. For some reason, in my mind, she looks like what I believe the young girl would look today. This is the child that was in the womb when I sold cocaine to the mother. And I watched this child grow up from about one to I would say easily seven. I believe I contributed in many, many ways to not only some mental disabilities, but then I took her mother from her. So it wasn't just in the womb that I you know, violated her nurturing dwelling space, but I contributed to a mother who is not gonna be able to show up, in my opinion. And every time I talk about this story, I find myself like tearing up. It is definitely something that if I could do it over again, that would be one of the things that I would do over. And for me, that's a lot because I believe there's opportunity in anything. The worst atrocities can lead to a bigger, more beneficial meaning. And I'm not curious about exploring that type of frame, trying to find like the bigger accomplishment in 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 what happened. Am I trapping myself by not allowing that? I guess that's like me wanting to be punished. Like I'd almost rather be reminded by the sadness that I was capable, that I might still be capable of that. So I'd rather hold on to it versus trying to elevate it into some bigger story. Or maybe this is me sharing. And this is the first time I can actually really love that part of me. Hmm. Interesting. As I kind of sit here and allow my interpretations and my intuition and my somatic experiences come to life in the vibration of voice, I can literally actually feel a sense of lightness Like I'm sharing What I'm labeling as One of the worst decisions Of my life And as I share it I, I started to feel A sense of lightness And now it makes me curious About how I Trap myself On purpose Again to remind myself That sadness brings it Into the body A memory Of certain behaviors And I can see myself In Leora And I hope when Leora hears this commentary That she can see herself In me And I guess anybody out there who is using guilt or using a shame narrative as a way to remind yourself to never, ever tread in that direction again, I would invite you and I definitely invite my friend Leora, when you're ready to give language, let it vibrate that part of you that's holding that shame, that part of you that's holding that guilt, let it speak and speak to people that you trust to tell you the truth. And I feel myself doing that right now, allowing the light to shine in. I'm Esco Wilson, and you've been listening to The Self-Awakened Lifestyle. You can find out more about me at theselfawakenedlifestyle.com. I'd like to thank Leora for coming to the show today. The Self-Awakened Lifestyle is part of the Miracy FM podcast network, which also includes such shows as Soul Savvy Business, and Once Upon a Business. This episode was produced by Cynthia Lamb. Melissa Deal assembled the episode. Danny Eney is our executive producer and post-production was by Post Office Sound. So you don't miss upcoming episodes, please follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review. It really does help us out. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.
3: And so the tailor, having gathered together the beautiful scraps, began to sew. He stitched and he sewed and he sewed and he stitched. And by the morning time, he had made himself a beautiful coat. Now, when he wore his coat into the market, everyone admired it so much that the tailor decided to wear the new coat everywhere. And that's what he did. He wore it and wore it and wore it until it was all worn out. Or was it?
1: In each episode of Once Upon a Business, Lisa shares a fairy, folk, or traditional tale and then extracts rich business lessons that are applicable for entrepreneurs, coaches, and course creators.
3: Stories always take us on a journey from one place to the next. Sometimes this journey is literal, sometimes it's metaphorical, but always we find ourselves transformed. This story, The Tailor's Coat, originating from Europe, takes us through a literal transformation of the pieces of cloth, and yet somehow teaches a powerful lesson. It does speak to a common entrepreneurial journey, Many of us start out working for someone else and give them everything we've got. Perhaps the tailor finally deciding to make something for himself is similar to the entrepreneurial desire to begin to create a business for ourselves. We take the scraps, the skills that we've developed, the experience that we've gained, and we launch our own business. I think it's an incredibly important skill for an entrepreneur, for anybody running a business, to be able to know that creating something out of nothing is always possible and it's often the way forward because it's out of the scraps of what's been done before it's out of almost the missing pieces that are not quite there that we can actually bring our creativity and bring our determination and bring our vision to create something really wonderful really brand new and really beautiful And then we can walk around the town with it. You know, we can be proud. We can step out and we can wear it until it's almost worn out, but not quite.
1: To hear more of Lisa's stories and learn the deep lessons they carry, make sure you subscribe to Once Upon a Business wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you every other week with a brand new episode.